This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the doctors from Radiotherapy. They actually finished on time today, which I have to say is a rare and beautiful thing. And ha- hats off to them for it. Great job. They're not listening, so I can tell whatever they want. Well, it's probably good they're not, or they'd be giving you greases. I know. I know. <laughs> the studio. Yeah, well, maybe they're just eager to get, get to their beamers. <laughs> it, it's interesting you say they finished on time today as the man is speaking in the microphone. It's 11.01. A.M. Yeah. But just saying. Well, you know, we played we played a little bit uh, bit of our theme. Dr. Lauren, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you, Perky. Yes, I'm very perky. I was just saying, I could, my wonderful husband made me pancakes for breakfast, so <laughs> I am on a sugar high. I'm going to talk complete rubbish all morning, and yeah. she's going to crush it eleven. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And we'll just park her in the corner with a warm <laughs> bottle of milk. Perfect. Dr. Ray, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. You well? Uh, yeah, sure. Are you, sure? <laughs> <laughs> you need some of my sugar. Exactly. <laughs> so, well, no, I, I'm in, uh, I'm in the, the teaching two subjects at once, lecturing uh, twice a day to 400 first years at a time, which is absolutely fabulous, but a little exhausting. <laughs> I remember and, that. Uh, <laughs> that's why I left. <laughs> teaching too much. Dr. Jean, good to see you too. Good to see you too, Dr. Shane. That was very formal. How come so, I didn't? Yeah. So, g'day, how you doing? Well, I just got to, good well, to see you. You. You, brought, you brought your husband with you today. I did. As, do you consider that the most evidence-based decision you've ever made in your life? <laughs> well, I think I need to be very careful how I answer this. <laughs> I need to answer with a lot of evidence, I think, because he's looking at me right now. He is, he is. I think it was a very good evidence-based decision that yep. I brought him along. Yep. Yes. And no need to update that evidence no, good. no, no, no. I think the evidence is in. He has stuff to say. It will be good. Yeah, well, you and Richie is coming in the show after our news segment, folks. And I tell you one thing, he's got an abundance. It's knowledge of ecology and, and all things science, but he also has plenty of opinions. And uh, we share them frequently on Facebook. Uh, Dr. Lauren, let's start with some news from you. What have you got? Mm, well, I have a bit of an update, actually. And it was something that I spoke about last year. So yeah, if everyone can remember back yeah, 365 days or There's so. A yeah, of course they are. Of course they are. Um, But no, it's actually about this whole idea of how we are trying to really fine-tune our ability to measure time. So, yeah, it's a mechanical clock. So, you know, using your pendulums and springs and things like that um, are, are obviously quite sensitive and quite uh, reliable, but they're not really at the scale that we are just I was going to say quite crap. Quite crap. Well, true. Quite crap as <laughs> yeah. well. <laughs> well you know, yeah, but they don't, yeah. they, don't last, they, they don't last over time. Exactly, exactly. And so what will happen is over time they gain or lose time. Um, and so what we really have been looking at over the last oh, few decades, really, um, are atomic clocks. And so this is basically an idea to, to use uh, atoms in a beam. So I'm going to talk you through it. It's a little bit complicated. But pretty much what happens is you have a thin, thin column of laser light. And then there's atoms that are actually cooled down and placed in that light. And the laser beam is then passed through the column of atoms. And depending on how the atoms change their excitation state, Basically, it gives these measures of ticks, which we can then use for timekeeping. Mm. And so the reason it's important is because we need really, really accurate timekeeping for things like our satellite navigation and you know, even our mobile phones and TVs mm. need to have really, really accurate timekeeping. And 
when you think about a normal mechanical clock, so they can lose, you know, seconds, you know, within a year. So they'll be off, you know, every year you're losing more and more time. So these atomic clocks, and the new one that they've come up with is using the stonium atoms. And it now is at the point where it will not lose or gain a second in 15 billion years, which is longer than the universe itself has existed. Whoa. So I reckon that's pretty good. Definition of accuracy. It's yeah. really astonishing. Yeah, one that cannot be verified. <laughs> yeah, well, that's it, exactly. But yeah, it, that's true. It, Who's going to be here to say that's right? <laughs> exactly. We'll have to keep really good notes to, to it's going check to outlast it. the Earth. Um, <laughs> that, is, that, that, is, that is amazing. It's, it, 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 it really is striking. And, and the, the thing that really blew my mind um, about this is. So Einstein's relativity theory actually states that time should be measured differently depending on how high you are. So gravity should play a, a role in, um, in how a clock works, basically. Now, this clock is so sensitive that if you raise it two centimetres off the surface of the ground, it actually counts time differently. No way. Yeah. How different. Oh, Isn't that just bizarre? Cool. Isn't that yeah, yeah. really, really weird? Yeah. So, it, so it's an amazing thing. And look, obviously, you're never going to have one of these in your kitchen to time your boiled egg but you know in terms of the applications it has it, it's pretty amazing we can get to that accuracy well and, but these clocks are used for time throughout the world I mean, mm. long time very sorry folks very long time listeners <laughs> of the program would remember me bringing in my old uh, national that was mm. before it became national panasonic before it became panasonic radio <laughs> really showing how which i now. still have at home in yeah. perfect working order because it has shortwave on it mm-hmm. and you used to be able to, from melbourne you used to be able to quite readily pick up the boulder colorado atomic clock transmissions very cool and i remember because my colleagues your predecessors were in the studio and i, I was getting really excited and all of a, all of a sudden i tuned it in you hear beep <laughs> and they're like well, that's it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, said, yeah. I said, what did you expect? Some dude saying, at the fourth stroke. It was, a, it was just the beeps from the clock, but yeah, you, could, yeah. you could pick it up here. So, it's I mean, these, these, these are very important um, mm. devices that, mm. that do, you know, they set everything we do from yeah. you know, airline traffic to every, everything is yeah. set on, on the basis of this precision. And it's quite funny. I actually was thinking about, you know, with the daylight savings change recently and how the iPhone just automatically updates. And it, and it is interesting. Like, we don't think about how our time is measured. No, not anymore. Yeah, it's just mm. it's just done for us. But you know, then you actually read about how they need to measure it and how they record it. It's pretty pretty well, striking. I want one. You just said I can't have one to measure my body. <laughs> Why not? <I> want one. <laughs> well, the biggest problem is it has to be basically pretty much zero degrees Kelvin. So you, yeah, it's God. a little bit tricky to have all right, that. All yeah. right. Mm. All right. Well, Doctor Ray, beat that. Uh, <laughs> well, first, Doctor Shane, that radio described. Did it have vacuum tubes in it? No, not quite that okay. old. <laughs> the transistor had been um, invented. Uh, I wanted to talk about artificial photosynthesis, mm. uh, and, and and so there's a couple different ways people have been trying to reproduce some aspect of photosynthesis synthetically for quite a while because you see this if trees do it why can't we philosophy and you see it in people trying to necessarily that might try to reproduce part of photosynthesis so to use solar energy through some mimic of photosynthesis to create electricity but really what trees are doing is using the using converting sunlight solar energy into converting co2 into another use of chemical mm-hmm. And so there's been quite a leap forward from researchers at the University of Berkeley and Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory where they've actually created a photosynthesis mimic that has more than achieved the efficiency of a leaf. And this is very cool how they did it. They actually took a a forest of silicon 
oxide and titanium oxide nanowires and seeded it with a bacteria that so it's this forest of nanopillars you could call them that uh with this bacteria that's a great catalyst for converting carbon dioxide and water in the presence of solar energy and so they actually used a bacteria made with materials structured in the same steps used to make microchips so lithography and they actually created this um photosynthesis mimic so the, the these forests of columns are used for light harvesters and they're actually converting carbon dioxide to acetate which is actually a very good chemical precursor Mm. um they already achieved the efficiency via leaf which is about Mm 0.38 their next device is three percent and they reckon 10 percent is commercially viable wow and 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 from a a chemical industry's viewpoint which is this could very much revolutionize the idea is carbon dioxide is the final form of carbon the chemical industry desperately needs to have some other initial starting form of carbon, we normally call it petroleum, to actually convert to useful products. So the idea of using solar energy to go backwards on the carbon to cascade where there's not much energy in CO2, it's the end product of most of what we do, the chance to be able to use that as a feedstock in a photosynthesis mimic is quite attractive. The reason we don't use CO2 now as a precursor for many chemicals is it's very energy intensive through traditional chemical processes to switch CO2 into a usable mm-hmm. feedstock. It can be done, but so it, it, this is really interesting. If they can hit three percent sometime soon, they reckon ten percent is viable, and they've already hit a leaf. This is do they think it's a pretty big step forward? But I think it's an area interesting to watch. It's mm. in the area of synthetic photosynthesis. It's probably the, one of the bigger steps forward in quite a while. Mm. So I'm going to go a Hollywood movie on you. So obviously that's got you know commercial implications and in industry and things. But is there ever the potential that we might have artificial forests of artificial synthetic trees? that will actually help us to get rid of carbon dioxide? Well, it's an interesting idea. Um, these are, in a movie, you could do in it. In a movie, you could do it. <laughs> so, uh, well, hang on, movies are real life, aren't they? Yeah, they're Documentaries. The idea is they're making these, um, these, these small devices that would effectively coat a large surface. Mm. Um, and so for light harvesting, as it turns out, I suspect what would look efficient to collect light would kind of look like, I don't know, a Tim Burton version of a forest. Yeah. It would yeah. look kind of scary, <laughs> weird, yeah, yeah. you know, and be made out of concrete with these shiny yeah. metal things on the sides. But yeah, I've uh, got a really radical idea. We could actually plant real forests <laughs> with real trees instead. What's I wrong with not you? be crazy. <laughs> what, is, but, what is wrong but, with you? But we're aiming for 10% efficiency to convert CO2. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the ideas about this was, though, in carbon capture and sequestration, which has its interesting debates over whether or not it's viable in the long term to try to reduce our CO2 emissions, that carbon dioxide could be a feedstock for chemical precursors. Okay. And so this might be a way to integrate mm. those two things. Carbon still amazes me. Mm. It's got a bad rap lately, but yeah, yeah. It, it, my understanding is of all the chemicals on the periodic table, it combines to make more other things than mm. all the others combined. Yeah. I, I, I heard that recently. I still remember. Um, I'm not, I'm not what about, about hydrogen? Yeah, but no, no, no. apparently carbon yeah. beats it. Apparently it trumps it. I still remember a high school teacher like putting out, you know, a diamond mm. and a pencil mm. and, you know, a beaker and like, all sorts of things to show us, yeah, all the different things carbon can be. Yeah. No one nicked the diamond. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, unfortunately, we weren't very smart. Well, maybe they did, and then they got home and realised, oh, shit, this is silica. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> God damn. damn it. 
Dr. Jen, what do you got for us? Okay, I want to go a bit CSI on you guys for a minute. Right. Great. So what do you do if there's been a serious crime and you've got wonderful evidence, it's DNA evidence, it's beautifully, you know, great quality DNA, but it leads you to your suspect. And, in fact, it leads you to two suspects because they are identical twins. Mm. Flip a coin. Sounds... Flip a coin. <laughs> no, you look yeah. at one because there's always one that looks a little evil. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's right. <laughs> Is that... So they reckon you can true. tell who's lying by, you know, whether they've got a twinkle in their eye. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, it sounds kind of far-fetched, but it actually turns out there's lots of cases out yeah. there where they just haven't mm. been able to prosecute because yeah. they can't risk putting the wrong person in jail for life. So yeah. there's two identical people walking out there. One oh. of them's, you know, committed some terrible crime, but because neither of them will own up to it, yeah. you know, there was all these conversations about, well, if you just put them in a room yeah. together, surely one of them will own up so that it doesn't risk the other one, the wrong person being in jail for the rest of their life, but it doesn't happen, apparently. Yeah. They just both stay mm. silent and they both remain free. Wow. Wow. So it's a bit of a problem because... You know, the human genome has three billion base pairs. It's kind of a fairly, you know, large amount of data. Mm. So standard DNA tests, all we have to do is um, analyse a very small fraction of that code because there are areas of, of our genetic code that we know are very variable across different people. So that's all mm. we have to do. So it can be done relatively quickly and easily. But, of course, that's no use for identical twins mm. who are genetically ah, identical. Fancy mm. that. Mm. So then you've got to sequence the entire genome mm. to look for really rare, um, you know, subtle differences, which is incredibly expensive and, and mm. also prohibitive you know from a time point of view so researchers have come along and said yeah but now we know a lot about the epigenome which we've talked about a lot on the show Mm. so epigenome basically means you know above the genes and it's essentially chemical modifications to our dna that happen as a result of the environment we're in our lifestyle disease so essentially what happens is these little um, methyl groups which have carbon in them carbon and hydrogen there you go Get, um, are attached to different places on our DNA and they affect the way that our genes are um, expressed. So mm-hmm. they're really important. And we now know a lot about it. Everyone will have heard something about, you know, whether you're affected by what your grandparents ate or all these mm-hmm. other things. But now it turns out that the differences in the methyl groups on our DNA um, affect the melting point of our DNA because the methyl groups have hydrogen in them and hydrogen affects the melting point. So really simple idea, but it turns out that it works, is if you heat up the DNA of identical twins and look at what point, what temperature they melt, they will be different as long as there are different yeah, different degrees of methylation to their DNA. That's amazing. Which is a really cheap, it can be done in a couple of hours, hardly mm. costs anything, and you can now distinguish between the DNA of identical twins, of course, on the assumption that their epigenomes are different. So if right. you've got identical twins that have had the identical same diseases, they've yeah. lived in the same environment, you know, their habits are all exactly the same and there's really no differences in in methylation, then that's not mm. going to work. But mm. that's pretty unlikely. Mm. You know, our understanding is that, that small differences in lifestyle can affect our epigenome. So well, especially if one of them's ended up evil. Well, totally. <laughs> yeah. you, you might expect they'd have a different experience yeah. to the other one in some exactly. way, shape or form. Because they live in that big castle with all the like evil monkeys. And I was going to say, Exposure to minions you do change live, your methylation. You live in movie world, Dr. Lauren, don't you? you I do. Yeah, I do. that's okay. Anyway, very cool use of the epigenome to distinguish between identical twins. Well, speaking of genomes, uh, a report came out this week about some um, Chinese scientists who have been pushing things a little further than the rest of the world, we might say. Mm. But um, I think despite the ethical debate that's going on around this work, there are some interesting outcomes. So this is... Um, a group basically from the University of Jiangsu who run by Sun Yat-sen who have looked at the possibility of modifying basically human embryos. So this is something that's been... Look, the, the real issue here is what people are worried about and the reason this has been prohibited around the world is 
if you modify the germline aspects of embryos, so the part that we pass on through hereditary, mm. they they are very concerned that you know if we muck something up here, we might mm. pass on a defect or a problem that becomes a very big problem yeah. for our species. Sure. So hence there are you know deep ethical concerns around this. Now, what these guys have done is they've been looking at a very specific type of modification to um, to beta thalassemia, which is a, a very fatal blood, very fatal. Does that make sense? <laughs> Some, well, it could be somewhat fatal. <laughs> it's fatal. Um, it's a fatal blood disorder. So it's a potentially fatal yeah. blood disorder. Does that yeah. work? Yeah, that's um, better. And you know the idea is maybe using this particular technique of editing out this error in in the genome, you could you could prevent this from from uh, occurring mm-hmm. in an individual by doing it at the embryo stage. So you find out you're going to have this in in your child. You, you look at the embryo, say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to just cut this piece of the genome out and fix it. Now this is all well and good. So they've thought you know we'll do this, and they've used what they're called. Um, I think they, they referred to them as non-viable embryos. So these are ones through the IVF program that were deemed non-viable. I'm not sure that their definition of non-viable is the same as everyone else's, but anyway, they took 86 of these embryos, uh, injected them with this particular chemical that could um, remove this component, and uh, some 71 of those embryos. They waited two days. So they took 86, 71 of them survived, 54 um, were then genetically tested, and 28 were successfully modified in this mm-hmm. way. So not an overly, you know, positive result, but, you know, not not bad. Um, now, the interesting thing is, is what they did determine, however, was the, there was a very large number of what they called off-target mutations, and this is where people start worrying, mm. because this one catch-all chemical was used to edit this one particular little piece of the genome, mm. but in the exome, so that's just part of our genome that they were monitoring, they found quite a significant number mm. of off-target mutations there as well. So these were unintended changes. Such an innocuous term. Uh, an yeah. off-target target. mutation. Yeah. What does it actually mean? Do they Third know? arm. Yeah, like do they have any uh, yeah. idea what sort of mutations we're well, talking about? Well, no. And in fact, and the more disturbing part, of course, is that um, this is only in the small part of the genome that they actually mm. looked at. Mm. So outside of that, the number of off target, and I agree, it's a great term. Mm. Mutations could be significantly higher. So, mm. although there is this massive ethical sort of cry out of "How dare you do this? You shouldn't be doing this." The rest of the world has said no to this. Mm. This guy has managed to demonstrate. Well, you know what? Um, in terms of medical uh, possibilities, this is not looking so good. Mm. So, mm. I've at least demonstrated that. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so which it's is useful. so it's interesting. I mean, this will play out over you know over coming years um, because as we're getting better and better with the technology we're becoming more able to edit our own genome and if we start doing that in the way that's passed on through hereditary scenarios then um, the question of uh, off-target mutations mm. becomes very very um, difficult to to deal with and i think you know until you can say the off-target mutations are zero mm. it's probably something we should avoid anyway we'll watch this space no doubt uh, we're going to take a short break for some music folks and we'll be back in a moment with um you and richie's going to be talking well we're going to be talking in here about a range of things but we're going to start off with the state of science in society and the way it is viewed and some of the things that are happening you are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. Now, uh, we're going to be talking uh, now with you and Richie. Welcome. You're on. How are you going? Thank you. It's good to be back. Yeah, good to have you back. Now, we're going to, later on, we're going to talk about you and Jen and your adventures and your crowdfunding. So 
get your credit cards out, folks, because we're going to need your support for this one. Um, but before we get to that, we wanted to just do a bit of an update on where things are in terms of science in Australia and, and more generally the world and the view of it and some of the things going on. And we've been banging on about a few of these issues, but we thought we'd lump it all into one episode. So I just wanted to give you guys um, here in the studio a couple of numbers before we started. Um, the first is, and, and these numbers are all out of date now, but I just grabbed them quickly last night. But uh, And I think they're probably worse now than they were when I grabbed them. But the, the government spending on R&D in general as a percentage of GDP for Australia, um, so these numbers are from 2013. Now, I'm happy to say that we are above Greece. <laughs> Few. And Slovak Republic, take that, we're above you too. <laughs> However, we are behind, um, so our, our spending is a little over point, uh, 0.5%, give or take. Um, and I remember calls 10 years ago to get that to 3%. So it's interesting how low it is relative to those those calls for that. So we're behind um, Slovenia, New Zealand, Russian Federation, Luxembourg, Czech Republic, France, Japan, Netherlands, United States, Norway, Austria, Estonia, Germany, Portugal, Denmark, Finland, and Iceland. Mm. Not good. Well, listen to the Kiwis. That's bad enough. <laughs> well, you know, they're, they're doing quite well, actually, yeah. uh, relative to us. So now the other thing is, um, which I find interesting is just looking at the percentage of grants that are funded by um, our research councils. And the interesting thing here is, is not... Um, how many grants are funded? Because it's definitely true that a lot more grants are funded now than 20 years ago. But what I find interesting is the number of grants that are deemed fundable, so of a quality that should be funded by the research councils, um, that are not. And so these are, I think, um, NH and MRC numbers that I've got here. So if we go back to the year 2000, about 37% of the total grant pool was considered um, you know, fundable, but it didn't get money. So there wasn't enough money to go around, but the research was considered of an international standard such that we should be putting money into it. 37%. Fast forward to 2012, and that number is 52%. Mm-hmm. Now, what makes that worse, of course, is that um, in two, the year 2000, there were only about 1,500 applications, whereas you know in 2012, 12, I think there are uh, 3,600 or something. So not only is the, the percentage much larger, but the sheer number of pieces of work that we would like to be able to fund because it's good, it's good quality work of an internationally competitive standard um, is not being funded. So we haven't, we haven't tracked well, I think. Cause now, you and, you, um, you and I exchange many messages on Facebook around these issues. <laughs> I mean, what, what's your impression at the moment of, of this in terms of the way we're heading? I mean, we, we've, we've had a lot of negativity, um, you know, spoken about with the government at the moment with regards to cuts to CSIRO and other areas. But, I mean, generally, how are we tracking? I think fairly poorly, is to be honest. Um, and I think, I guess, I feel lucky. I'm one of the lucky ones. I have a permanent job. Mm. I have tenure. Um, and I really feel for particularly young scientists, to be honest. Um, what you also didn't cover in those stats is how many grants go to older academics and not younger academics. So not only is it hard to get grants, it's harder if you're a young scientist to get a grant. Mm. And it's also hard even just to keep going. So we've just lost the Future Fellowship Scheme as an example, yep. which gives a lifeline to young scientists in between you know, finishing their PhD and sort of that, I guess, next phase of getting a tenured academic job if they're lucky enough. Um, I think I saw a stat not long ago where 50% of PhD students sort of had an ambition to have an academic career 
and about 8% actually get one. Right. And yet we're pushing for more PhD students in many universities. Mm. So I think there's really ethical and moral issues to be explored there as well as what it means for science as a whole. So, so how, do we, how do we compare that, though, to other fields? Because, I mean, I, I know if, if I was to look at certain degrees, so if I was to take medicine, veterinary science, dentistry, um, you know, any of these clinical-type degrees, the employment into those actual fields post the degree is generally above 95%. So almost everyone who does a medical doctorate ends up in that job. It's, it's expected, it's all, and, it, and to some degree, it, well, certainly at the early stages where you have internships in hospitals, it's guaranteed. Mm. Let's go to the other end of this, the spectrum. I do an arts degree. Um, the percentage there of people going into their own fields is generally below 10%. Now, science is somewhere in the middle. It's not, a, it's not quite a clinical activity, although the training is very clinical in nature because we're actually doing the science during the training period, but it sits somewhere in that range. Now, um, is there an expectation that everyone who gets a science degree should have a science job is that reasonable i mean it's certainly expected for the medicos but it's certainly not expected for people doing performing arts or or the arts yeah look i think it's unrealistic to think that everyone should get a job and whatever whatever field of study you're in and i'd also say that you know i think we should be also prioritizing funding the arts more as well mm-hmm. the arts and sciences i think do fairly poorly in that respect but i think it's a pretty easy argument to, to put forward that most scientists don't have a, a legitimate career path within the area they've been trained to do and and I think that's the key point too, that we train a lot of scientists to do a certain thing and yet they, the jobs that they're trained for don't exist anymore or mm. certainly not the numbers that they need to. Mm. And, you know, one of the biggest employers of PhD students, as an example, is banks of all right. people yeah. because they have skills like data analysis, critical thinking and things like that, which, you know, employers actually highly value. But unless you go in early with your eyes wide open about what, I guess, qualities you have that employers might want um you're probably sort of putting it down a fairly narrow path as opposed to what you could be doing and i think there's also a role for industry a lot earlier on Mm. in actually coming to universities and to students and saying well you know we have these issues and why can't we work together rather than students i guess being trained Mm. so i agree with a lot of those statements but i'm a little concerned about the phrasing i heard gosh are they going to get a science job where clearly a science job has to reside at university? Not necessarily. I think that's yeah. an unrealistic expectation. Um, Australia suffers from a couple of things that are different than other countries. We have a lot more of our research done at universities than, mm. say, the U.S. that has a, a larger industry. But it, it also kind of gets back to we don't have a, a, a national scientific strategy. And so where we graduate people in and where we grow PhDs are just where we can do excellent research in. And there's sometimes a disconnect between that and our industry sector. There was an interesting paper by Tanya Monroe in the conversation pointing out that we have amazing medical research, but we don't really have in a small to medium enterprise industry base to actually interface with them because we don't have big pharma down here. And then we have great physical sciences research as well, where we actually probably interface a little bit better with industry, but we don't have great ways to grow it. Mm. Uh, and if you look in, I've heard the study before, but it was mentioned in, this is a different article. Australia ranks 29th out of 30 in OECD countries on the proportion of large and small businesses collaborating with higher education and public research. Mm. And, and we really need a mechanism to drive that. The only thing we have on the federal government scale, other than, say, IRC linkage, is the amazing, um, I'm not going to, that amazing tax credit that if, 
for innovation, that companies can say, oh, we did innovation, we can get a tax credit on that. I think that was supposed to drive interaction, but I think what happens in practice is t- around tax time they go around and say, okay, what was innovation that we did? <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and so to get industry yeah. interacting more, you almost, instead of a, and this is really extreme, instead of a tax credit, call it a tax Make that a pool of money to go industry, go work with people who can provide innovation, Mm. CSIRO, universities, institutes. But we don't have that driver in our economy. And and I think on the political side, they know there's just no action Mm. on it. Mm. Now, there has been investment uh, in recent times, or at least one suggested, and we've all uh, been talking about this, but uh, Dr. Bjorn Lomborg... who seems to be uh, in the direction of taking up residence over in uh, Western Australia at the University of WA, um, and there is a $4 million um, set up for a university think tank there. Um, now, he is a well-known, and they use the term, which I think is quite polite, climate contrarian, which um, I think we, we were saying off-air a few words that we probably shouldn't say. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, I mean, this is interesting. So we have a scenario where we, we are seeing some of these quite substantial cuts to various areas of science in Australia and to the university sector as well, and yet we are parachuting in um, these international uh, researchers who, by all accounts, have appalling um, research backgrounds into substantial positions at Australian universities with substantial funding um, whilst the you know, future fellow programs and so forth are being removed. This... This seems madness. Yeah, and I think perception is really important there. So as an example, we got rid of the Climate Commission, you know, mm. which was, many would argue, a very beneficial um, entity that put out the evidence, or sorry, not the evidence, even just the information without any politics, without any um, emotions involved about what we know about climate change, and that mm. was abolished very quickly. And yet we can find $4 million to do this. Mm. Um, that $4 million could potentially buy 10 or more future fellowships, again, invest in the future or in something else. So I think that that perception, the message that it sends to the public i think is really important mm. dr lauren you want to yeah i said sort of getting back i guess to the industry thing as well i think it's almost a two-way street as well as so a lot of researchers i talk to often make statements like you know i don't care about commercialization i don't really think it's important and i think that's the other side of the coin really you know that researchers need to appreciate that we need to get our research out you know everything we do in a lab means nothing unless it actually mm. gets out to the people and so that's probably the other side of which you know, in my training, for example, that was never part of my PhD. I mm. never thought about these sorts of things. Uh, and I think we, we, we have to be mindful, too, mm. that there's, there's, there's a lot of research that that actual research mm. is a fair way from where industry sure. will take it on. And, sure. and, and so those researchers may not interact with industry mm. as much, but it's the overall pathway that mm. has to exist that currently has a lot of gaps. And there's mm. nothing new about this this discussion. I think there's nothing new. But as other industries in Australia pair back, mm. we might want to think carefully about, mm. about this. And, you know, if we, do, if we do have a country that's supposedly, you know, filled with economic rationalists that are just, you know, making choices on that basis alone, well, mm. investing vast quantities in money in training people up and then letting them fall off a, you know, a, a, yeah, an cliff. employment cliff yeah, yeah. Uh, is not... An economically smart thing to do, and mm. that's where I think we're losing a lot of people to, you know, to other jobs where we could very well use them. Mm. The, the bit that burns me out, though, mm. <laughs> sorry, mm. okay, I'm going to get annoyed now, <laughs> is, is that you know scientific knowledge is highly valuable yeah. in all forms, yep. and it would be nice to see a lot more. No, it would be normal to <laughs> see a lot more decision making based on good, solid scientific knowledge sure. and data. 
And this is where we seem to be really losing out. And, mm. and you and I mean, we're going to get into this more in the next session, but the, the issue around environmental sustainability yeah. and some of these things, it, it, it seems almost inconceivable sometimes the basis on which some of these decisions are being made if a person has even the most vaguest most vague limited bit of scientific knowledge in in their mind yeah and and i mean for so many issues there's an ecological argument but there's an economic one Mm. you know take Mm. our forests on on our doorstep in melbourne our forests which we cut down for almost no money in fact it runs at a loss you know taxpayers Mm. fund the cutting down of those trees and yet they're worth millions if not billions in ecosystem services you know in terms of carbon sequestration our our water our water captions and yet we still do it and you sort of think well it put even the environmental issue to the side and lead beaters possums etc which you know deservedly should be able to survive regardless of us mm. there's an economic argument mm. it doesn't make sense mm. so when i look at this list of uh, you know gdp investment in research mm. and i look at the top end you know iceland finland denmark mm. i mean how are they scoring in these areas i mean how are they doing I'm always envious of the Scandinavians and, and the people to the north. <laughs> I always ask myself, why do they do much better than us? And I think, I, I think also there's an interesting question there about around education and about how education is viewed as a nation. I mean, you look at how places like Norway invest in their teachers, and mm. I wonder whether that carries through to later life and how science and knowledge in society and evidence-based decision-making might be influenced as opposed to other nations. Mm. Well, we're going to take a break, folks, and uh, hear some music, but we'll be back in a moment. We're going to talk more about the environment and also I think vaccinations are going to come up and talk a bit about that. And um, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. We are having a week off from getting a million guests in the studio and instead have one awesome guest. So that's uh, (laughs) (laughs) chosen by Dr. Uh, <laughs> Hang on, he's got his own credibility. Oh, no, he certainly does. Yeah, and, and you know he's after your spot. Absolutely. Yeah, he's Absolutely. definitely, you know, you're going to have to work a bit harder. All right, folks, we'll be back in just a moment. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR FM in Melbourne, Australia. You are listening to 3 Dubois. Now, we've uh, we've been talking about all things science here on the show today, folks, and the one thing that you will have seen in the papers that uh, I got some messages from Dr. Lauren late last week about was the issue around vaccinations. Mm-hmm. Now, Lauren, th- there, was, there was a different view of this put out um, this week, which is probably a bit harsh. It was, yeah, definitely. So for those of you who haven't seen it, um, the Australian Vaccination Skeptics Network put out an ad this week on Thursday, I believe it was, on Facebook, and it's a image of a woman that has a man behind her with his hand over her mouth and it's obviously a violent image um it definitely brings up um, ideas of rape and things like that and the image actually has a um uh, a text on it saying uh forced penetration really no big deal if it's just a vaccination needle and he's just a doctor do you really need control over your own choices Mm. now this has obviously brought up a lot of emotion you can probably even hear it in my voice i get quite upset about these sorts of things Uh, and interestingly even people that belong to the network got quite riled up about this so facebook went pretty crazy on it Mm. because it really is taking something that should be you know a discussion about the science and really you know linking it to something which just should not happen in Mm. my opinion look it's an interesting one i've you know we've had many discussions on the show this year we've had a few guests on about Mm. vaccinations Mm. and you know i mean one of the things that we have to point out first up is that i mean i I don't know if anyone in this studio has seen polio (laughs) i haven't you know so so we don't it's very difficult to comment yeah 
on the removal of those vaccines. I mean, I remember measles. Mm. It shows my age, <laughs> um, you know, vaguely yeah. um, when I was a kid. But you know, these these are things that our our modern society in in Australia and some other nations in the world have not seen. Yeah. Now, of course, there was this big case, you know, the Disneyland case, where you know one goes in, a hundred come out mm. with the measles, um, just last year in California, which has led to some quite stringent um, responses. In fact, some new New legislation being pushed through at the moment with mm. regards to attendance of um, public and private schools in California mm. because of this. Um, and I think, but we have to pair this back a bit, I think, yeah. because one of the things that's happening, and I think this is where I, I will will fight to the death, um, more or less, mm-hmm. um, for, for those who aren't vaccinating, and that is when people turn around and call these individuals bad parents, I think it, that is not on. Um, I think if if anyone called me a bad parent for any reason Mm -hmm. you expect a fight on your hands you will get it. Um, Regardless of whether I'm right or wrong, um, as a parent you do that, you're going to get an emotional response. So, So there's that but if you if you look at the other angle of this as as, a, as an individual in our society, do you have the right or do you have the choice and this mm. is the term that's used yeah. to put other newborns uh, leukemia patients mm. and so forth at, at risk, mm-hmm. then the answer to that for me is a firm no. Definitely. And I think those two arguments need to be carefully separated because at the moment they seem to be being used by the same people mm-hmm. at the same time and I think we'd get a lot further mm-hmm. if we look to people for their responsibility to, you know, the solidarity of mm-hmm. us and other human beings mm-hmm. and trying to get them to be responsible mm-hmm. for that as opposed to saying you're a bad parent, you don't yeah. vaccinate and, kids. And it comes back to evidence-based management and risk. Mm-hmm. I mean, what's the greatest risk? Okay, so people have these ideas that somehow immunisation leads to these horrible things, which of course science says it doesn't. Mm-hmm. But even if it did have some minutes risk what about the risk of someone getting sick and what happens next mm. so yeah. you have to look at the risk factors and then make a decision based on that which i think is why science is so important it's the clear thinking you 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 look at all the obje- things objectively and you make a decision based on that mm. it's, it's interesting how, how we view, we're back to this thing of viewing science mm. so the risk of you dying from polio is quite substantial the risk of you having an adverse reaction exactly. to a vaccine is there mm. there you know we're not saying there's a non-zero risk yeah. but relative to the risk of you dying from polio or, or having measles, you know, the, the, the detrimental effects of these diseases, mm-hmm. especially in children or the elderly, um, these aren't the same thing. They, mm-hmm. they, they're proportionally way out of whack with one another. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's funny how much we accept in our society. So I know there's this... Um, Health and Wellbeing blogger, what's her name? Beth something, um, oh, that's getting absolutely, you know, hammered at the moment. Yeah. And it's funny, I had a conversation about this yesterday with a friend of mine, and um, she was saying, you know, this is outrageous, blah, blah, blah. And I said, yeah, but I opened my local newspaper, and there are ads for tarot card readers. Yeah. And the same newspaper has my horoscope. Mm-hmm. Hang on. <laughs> We're accepting of, of mm. what I, I consider just to be utter nonsense mm. um, in one sense, but when someone else does it in, in the new world of, of the, the web... The sides of diets, paleo diet. This is outrageous. Mm. You know, we can't handle this. So I think we have to be careful here of, of nuancing our responses and saying, well, hang on, mm. this person over here giving this advice is fine mm. because they're under this, you know, clairvoyant tag, mm. whereas this person who's put themselves up as a health and, and wellness expert is being slapped. Mm. Personally, I think they should all get slapped for it. Mm. But, <laughs> but, you know, let's, let's not 
not discriminate based Have on so hands. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, in, in in terms of um, the environment, uh, I mean, you, you guys are you and Gina big on this, but how are we tracking? I mean, it, it seems. I mean, well, I mean, the question is here t- twofold. One is. Under the influence of climatic change, we know that many environmental scenarios will be stressed, and, and that is a concern. And we're seeing that in some parts of the world, presumably at the moment. In other parts, we're not. But in addition to that, there's these pesky humans um, also stressing the environment. How are we going in Australia in terms of some of our iconic species? Yeah, well, poorly is the short answer again, unfortunately. And I, I relate it back to mammals because that's what I know best. But... Uh, there was a, a paper recently published uh, reviewing the mammal um, situation in Australia, and um, we've lost 30 species since Europeans turned up 200 wow. years ago. Now, put that in perspective, North America in that same time period has lost one. Wow. wow. We have the worst record in the world by a mile, and yet we're one of the richest nations, of course, in the world per capita now, and we actually have abundant resources to do something about it. Now, now just, I mean, I have to hit that with my, my scientific training and say, okay, they've lost one, we've lost 30. Were our 30 in a bad position when we started or i mean you know are we on a level playing field here or, or no they weren't just... in a bad situation so what happened was of course that things like cats and foxes were introduced to okay. australia yep. as well as other factors that occurred at the same time so particularly in the case of cats and foxes they've ravaged our native wildlife mm. but this also gets back to environmental management and evidence-based management so as an example we now know that foxes probably do a good job of controlling cats we know that dingoes certainly do control mm. things like um, foxes and kangaroos and yet we invest huge amounts of money in Australia killing dingoes because of their impacts on livestock. We also now know from scientific evidence that dingoes actually help livestock graziers in many cases by keeping kangaroo numbers down. So economically, you're actually better off having dingoes and not killing them. And they're pretty amazing looking creatures, I have to say. They're wonderful animals. (laughs) When they put wolves back in uh, Yellowstone Park, they Mm. couldn't believe what happened to the actual land because Mm. deer couldn't graze out in the open Mm. and soil erosion decreased and rivers regenerated Mm. because Mm. deer it wasn't that the deer didn't were completely Mm. decimated they just didn't graze out in the open anymore yeah Mm. out of control in numbers and so forth yeah Mm. and what what is the scenario with the dingo population i mean this is our apex predator right it's our only apex predator on the land that we have Mm. um obviously we had many predators before then but they've all disappeared so it's our only one and places like victoria they're not doing very well at all they're being actively controlled in many areas Mm. um because of their impacts on livestock. But again, we have solutions at hand for this. So we have things like guardian animals, which are very effective at protecting livestock. Mm. We could use better fencing if, in some areas if we need to. We don't need to be doing what we're doing. It's actually buying us more problems than it's fixing. And this is, I guess, again, the thing that's frustrating as a scientist, that we we know what we can do to preserve native wildlife um, using dingoes as part of that, and yet we still manage dingoes in a way that probably actually creates more problems. So why is it, given, given the simplicity of this, I mean not simplicity but you know it's a simple to understand argument for you know as a farmer you are better off having the dingoes in the system economically why is this not being taken up i guess the probably the short answer is there's social and political factors there so mm-hmm. to give you an example there's a, a grazier that i know in western australia who keeps dingoes on his property does very well mm-hmm. his cattle are nice and fat and happy his neighbor doesn't they starve in the drought so forth hasn't been to the pub for 10-plus years because no one will talk to him. Really? So social factors come into play in terms of doing something different. Mm. We all know um, what happens there. But then there's political factors as well in terms of you know certain lobby groups pushing back against ideas of actually letting dingoes come back into landscapes as well. Yeah. 
It is definitely frustrating, isn't it? Because it's, we, we've made these mistakes so many times in the past. I mean, like cane toads, for example. Yeah. You know, like you just can't introduce things and you can't change the balance and expect that, that things will still be okay. So it's, it's, yeah, the science is there. You're right. I mean, you know, Steven Spielberg really did it for sharks. Is this a yeah. dingo stole my baby problem? Oh, that still plays out, yeah. sure. Mm. But, I, yeah, there's definitely this myth that dingoes are sort of running around killing animals left, right and centre yeah. and they're not. So, mm. um, yeah. Mm. All right, we uh, we better take a short break because we're going to come back and talk about your um, your roo count, which is uh, very exciting. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, you are listening to Three Triple R, Doctor Jen. Uh, you and your good man here are heading up north soon, and you need our subscribers and listeners to help. We sure do. So a couple of days ago, we launched a crowdfunding campaign on Possible, and it's called the Big Roo Count, and it's basically to try and get you and I back up north to continue some really exciting and important work. So ten years ago, picture this: we'd just finished, well, you and had just finished his PhD. I was fortunate enough to get to help him do a lot of the field work, and it was working on a whole lot of different kangaroo species and some wallabies, but mostly a gorgeous animal called the antilopine wallaroo that occurs all across northern Australia. So picture Cape York, the top of the Northern Territory and the Kimberley. And Ewan's work was basically the first ever to go and work out where this species occurs, why it's where it is, um, you know, collecting this really important information. And so we're in this gorgeously wonderful yet um, slightly stressful position of we've <laughs> got to get back there. We need to get some money so we can get back there 10 mm. years later and work out what's happened because the story is that it's probably not that good. Mm. Anecdotal reports are that there's not very many of them um, and we want to find out why and what we can do about it and get mm. back there. Yeah, and I think a really important reason for doing this work is how quickly things can change too. So yeah. long-term monitoring in ecology is really rare. and But also common species can disappear quickly. So a lot of these kangaroos are quite common, um, some of them not so much. And a lot of people probably have the idea, well, there's kangaroos everywhere in Australia, mm. why would we need to do this? But actual fact, smaller wallaby species are declining. Things like, again, feral cats, chimney fires. But even common species, Christmas Island pipistrelle, a bat that used to live on Christmas Island, has now become extinct. Mm. Happened in a couple of decades. Mm. So this can happen quickly. So we really need to get back up there and find out how these animals are going, even these common ones. Now, um, before we quickly give out the details of how people support um how do you count these things? I mean, is it you, you guys sitting there in the tent with binoculars? How do you, <laughs> how do you count them? How do you, you know you haven't you, you double-counted? You drive a four-wheel drive really slowly and look out the window, but right. more importantly and excitingly, you can look at poo. So mm. you can actually get poo off the ground and you actually look at the genetics. Um, and you can, each species, of course, has a different, in different um, signature, so you can look at the different genetics in the, in the, in the poo samples and, mm. uh, and see what species are present. Um, camera traps as well are brilliant as well for the small right. species. So a range of techniques is a short answer. And you do, I have to say... Absolute environmental warriors taking your two young kids with you on this adventure. We can't wait. It's going to be pretty <laughs> mind-blowing for them, I think. So I get to homeschool along the way as yep. well as do all the research. Um, yeah, bring it on. We can't wait. We just want to get back there. You know, this this landscape, these animals are really mm. kind of in our hearts now. And having not been up there for 10 years, we just really want to get back and find out what's going on. Because like you and said, 10 years, it's a long, it's time, a long time in some ways, but it's mm. not very long in other ways. And things could be very different. The website? is www.possible.com slash count. All right, we'll put it on our Twitter feed, folks, and uh, you can please, please, please support these guys in doing it. They're not after a lot of money. How much is it? 15000 will get us started, yeah, so that'd be great. That's not much. And we've got so, some um, great rewards for you too. Indeed we have. Fantastic. And uh, we're going to have to leave it there. We, we've we been tweeting a lot of interesting stuff today, folks, too. I, I tweeted a picture of Liv before because her... Um, 
Her shirt is an odd colour. We can't work it out. Ewan, of course, you are from Deakin University. I am Thank from you. Deakin University. <laughs> we should Hello mention to the that. Vice Chancellor. <laughs> Thanks so much for coming. It was great having you back. You're like a, you, you are like a part of the family, so we forgot Thank to mention you. where you're from. Um, Dr. Jen, thanks so much. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Dr. Lauren, Dr. Ray, good to see you both. And, uh, yeah, uh, we're going to hand over now to Edith. Thanks for listening to Einstein and Gogo. Remember, science is everywhere. We'll talk to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.